This audio lecture is based entirely upon the case books, torts, cases, and contexts, volumes one and two, by Eric E. Johnson. The case books are published by Cali E. Langdell Press and licensed Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International. This means that the author has allowed everyone to copy and redistribute the material in any medium or format, and remix, transform, and build upon the material as long as users give appropriate credit and redistribute contributions under the same license. Much thanks is due to the author for writing this book and providing it to everyone for free. In furtherance of this spirit and in compliance with the original license, I also license this audio lecture as Creative Commons Attribution, share alike, 4.0, international. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Tort Law Lectures. This is lecture number one. And in this lecture, we'll be talking about an overview of tort law. The most straightforward way to organize the study of torts is to group together causes of action and then explore one cause of action at a time, running through the elements and relevant defenses for each. That is how these lectures are organized. Unfortunately, some topics do not fit into this structure, since they are relevant to all or many tort causes of action. Such topics include immunities, remedies, special issues regarding who can sue, and generally applicable affirmative defenses. Such topics will be treated separately. Now moving to our first topic, direct harm to persons or physical property. What we are calling the lineal torts are the ones that involve some kind of direct injury to a person's body or physical property. And rarely the harm can be to a person's mental well-being. In this category of lineal torts, the harm to person or property is a direct one. Lineal tort causes of action can be divided into two categories. Those that will accrue from accidents and those that will apply to intentional actions. Now moving to causes of action for accidents, and negligence. The most general cause of action that is available for accidents is negligence. Motor vehicle accidents and most kinds of medical malpractice are negligence cases. There are five elements to the cause of action for negligence. A plaintiff can win a negligence case by showing that, one, the defendant had an obligation to be careful. Two, the defendant wasn't careful, and that carelessness was three, an actual cause, and four, a not-too-indirect and not-too-far-fetched cause of five, a bodily injury or damage to physical property. Those are the elements of negligence, but those are not the words courts actually use to talk about negligence. 
We'll have to translate our plain English into legal terms of art. So restated in legal terms of art, a plaintiff can establish a prima facie case for negligence by showing one, the defendant owed the plaintiff a duty of due care. Two, the defendant breached that duty. And that breach was three, an actual cause. And four, a proximate cause of five, an injury to the plaintiff's person or physical property. The duty of care concept simply means that, under the circumstances, the defendant had an obligation to be careful. A defendant is said to owe a duty of care, that is, have an obligation to be careful, with regard to all foreseeable plaintiffs. This means that if you should have known you could hurt someone by being careless, then you had an obligation to be careful. The breach element is established if the defendant was not, in fact, being careful. The element of actual causation means that there is a logical cause and effect relationship between the defendant's carelessness and the plaintiff's injury. That is to say, if the defendant had actually been careful, then the plaintiff would never have gotten hurt. Generally speaking, if the plaintiff would have gotten hurt anyway, then the element of actual causation is not met. The element of proximate causation means that the cause and effect relationship between the defendant's conduct and the plaintiff's injury cannot be too tenuous. The injury element requires that the plaintiff actually got hurt. You cannot sue someone in negligence just because you are mad at them for almost getting you killed. If you come away without a scratch, then there is no negligence case. There are three affirmative defenses that are particularly relevant to negligence. The first two are comparative negligence and contributory negligence. These are really two different versions of the same idea. Relieving the defendant from liability when the plaintiff's own negligence contributed to the plaintiff's injury. This kind of defense may either be complete, absolving the defendant of all liability, or partial, allowing the defendant to pay no more than some percentage of the total damages. An additional affirmative defense is assumption of the risk, based on the idea that where the plaintiff knowingly and voluntarily assumed the risk of something bad happening, the defendant should not be liable. Now moving to strict liability. The cause of action for strict liability, like negligence, is also available for a plaintiff who has suffered a bodily injury or property damage because of an accident. But while negligence is available broadly for just about any kind of accident, Strict liability is available only in a few limited circumstances in which the law imposes an absolute responsibility for safety. 
Those circumstances are wild animals, trespassing livestock, domestic animals with known vicious propensities, defective products, and ultra-hazardous activities. The elements for strict liability are the same as those for negligence, with one powerful exception. The duty of care and breach of duty elements are removed. This means that if the cause of an injury falls into one of the five categories for strict liability, then it doesn't matter how careful a defendant was being. That is, a plaintiff can establish a prima facie case for strict liability by showing 1. The defendant's conduct falls into one of the categories for which there is an absolute responsibility for safety and the defendant's conduct was the two, actual cause, and three, proximate cause, of four, an injury to the plaintiff's person or physical property. The key question in strict liability is when it may be invoked. That is, how do we define the categories giving rise to absolute responsibility for safety? Ultra-hazardous activities trigger the absolute responsibility for safety. That much is clear. But there is considerable room for argument as to what qualifies as ultra-hazardous. Some examples of activities the courts have said qualify as ultra-hazardous are fireworks, blasting, crop dusting, fumigation, oil drilling, and just about anything related to nuclear activity. On the other hand, jurisdictions are split on whether transporting gasoline by tanker truck qualifies. With regard to defective products liability, the key question is what counts as a defect. The law recognizes three kinds of defects. A manufacturing defect, whereby some product failed to be made to specification. A design defect, where the product was designed in such a way that it was unreasonably dangerous. And a warning defect, in which the lack of a clear warning causes an otherwise safe product to be dangerous. An interesting aspect of strict products liability is that anyone in the distribution chain can be held liable from the retailer to the distributor to the manufacturer. Now moving to intentional torts. The next broad category is that of intentional torts. You will see that where the defendant acted with intent in harming the plaintiff, the law allows many more options for recovery. There are seven traditional intentional torts. Four are personal, three are property-related. The intentional personal torts are battery, assault, false imprisonment, and outrage, also known as intentional infliction of emotional distress, or IIED. The intentional property torts are trespass to land, trespass to chattels, and conversion. Now moving to battery. The tort of battery requires an intentional infliction of a harmful or offensive touching of a person. 
The touching does not need to be direct. Touching someone's clothing or even an object the person is holding can qualify. Setting in motion some process that eventually results in a touching qualifies as well. So setting up a bucket of water to pour on someone's head when they walk into a room weeks later will count as a touching. The touching also does not need to be on the outside of the body. Giving someone a beverage adulterated with a substance or a narcotic would count as a touching. The intent requirement is more relaxed than you might think as well. Knowing with substantial certainty that a person would be harmfully or offensively touched, for instance, suffices for the purpose of battery. Intent is also satisfied where the defendant intended only a near miss. The most important aspect of battery, when compared to negligence and strict liability, is that there is no injury requirement. Spitting on someone, for instance, rarely causes an injury, but it will constitute a battery. In a case without an injury, it might not be possible to win any appreciable monetary award. But a claim can nonetheless be made and vindicated. And since some harmless touchings are quite reprehensible, like spitting, a large award of punitive damages might well be justified. The affirmative defense of consent is extremely important to battery. Consent can be expressed in words or implied by the circumstances or a past course of interaction. The defense of consent is what keeps contact sports out of the courtroom. Now moving to assault. The tort of assault is similar to battery, but it does not require a touching. Assault is defined as the intentional creation of an immediate apprehension of a harmful or offensive touching. In other words, making someone think they are about to be a recipient of a battery constitutes an assault. Like battery, assault does not require an injury as part of the prima facie case. Also like battery, the intent requirement is nonspecific. Intending to hit someone, but actually missing qualifies as intent for the purpose of establishing battery. Now moving to false imprisonment. The tort of false imprisonment is established by proof of intentional confinement, experienced or harmful, of a person to a bounded area. Kidnapping counts as false imprisonment. But a very brief period of locking someone in a room is false imprisonment as well. An actionable confinement can be accomplished by physical force, threat of physical force, or improper claim of legal authority. For instance, overzealous store security guards can accrue liability for false imprisonment by making improper assertions of legal authority in detaining persons suspected of shoplifting. No harm needs to be done, nor any injury inflicted, for a claim of false imprisonment. 
A key affirmative defense is consent, which, for instance, keeps airlines from incurring liability for making passengers wait for the authority to get out of their seats. Another key affirmative defense is the lawful arrest privilege, which allows the police and sometimes citizens to affect the arrest of a criminal suspect. Now moving to outrage, or intentional infliction of emotional distress. The tort of outrage is commonly called intentional infliction of emotional distress, shortened as IIED. Liability for the tort is triggered by the intentional or reckless infliction by extreme and outrageous conduct of severe emotional distress. The key to remember with outrage is that merely insulting or treating someone badly will not suffice. The conduct has to be extreme and outrageous. Teasing and name-calling does not qualify. Falsely telling someone that a loved one is dead, however, certainly would. Sometimes an outrage claim can be successfully pursued in employment situations where a worker's boss engaged in a prolonged campaign of harassment. Also important, the emotional distress experienced by the plaintiff must be severe. Making someone cry is not enough. Reducing someone to uncontrolled screaming or prolonged hysterical sobbing, however, would likely qualify as severe. Over the longer term, severity could be established by proving recurring night sweats, heart palpitations, panic attacks, or the wearing down of teeth through chronic grinding. Now moving to trespass to land. The intentional tort of trespass to land requires an intentional physical invasion of a person's real property. Real property is land along with anything built on or affixed to the land, as well as the subsurface below and the airspace above to a reasonable distance. Failing to remove something from the plaintiff's land that the defendant is obligated to remove also counts as trespass to land. To have a valid claim for trespass to land, no injury is necessary. Touching a physical portion of the land is not even necessary. A disgruntled homeowner could theoretically sue neighborhood kids for playing a game of catch in which a ball is thrown over a corner of the homeowner's lot. Of course, in such a case, no compensatory damages would be awarded since there is no harm needing compensation. Punitive damages would be unavailable as well since the kid's behavior would not warrant it. In such a case, a court would likely award only nominal damages of $1. So, such a case would, as a practical matter, be pointless to pursue. But the fact that bringing such a claim is possible serves to illustrate the incredible sweep of the tort of trespass to land. Also important for trespass to land is how the intent requirement is construed. The defendant does not need to have the specific intent to trespass. If the defendant intends only to walk upon a public right-of-way, but nonetheless strays into private property, 
The intent of putting one foot in front of the other is sufficient intent to establish the cause of action. Of course, consent is a defense, as it is to intentional torts generally. So when the neighborhood kids come trick-or-treating during Halloween, they will have a defense of implied consent. Now moving to trespass to chattels. Chattels are items of tangible property that do not qualify as real property. Motor vehicles, paper clips, jewelry, horses, and balloons are all chattels. An action for trespass to chattels will lie when there is an intentional interference with the plaintiff's chattel by use, intermeddling, or dispossession. The requirement for trespass to chattels is stricter than for trespass to land. Merely touching or waving a limb over real property counts as trespass to land. But for trespass to chattels, a mere touch will not qualify, nor will merely picking the item up. There has to be something more, not damage, but something that amounts to an interference with the plaintiff's rights in the chattel. Stealing the item, damaging it, or destroying it would be more than enough. And finally, conversion. The intentional tort of conversion is an alternative cause of action for chattels. A conversion is effected by an intentional exercise of dominion or control over a chattel that so substantially interferes with the plaintiff's rights as to require the defendant to be forced to purchase it. If the plaintiff wants to pursue conversion, the plaintiff will need to make a heightened showing compared to trespass to chattels, proving that the defendant so substantially interfered with the chattel that a forced sale is warranted. The main difference between trespass to chattels and conversion is the remedy. For conversion, the court will order the defendant to pay the plaintiff for the value of the chattel before the defendant interfered with it. It is an example of what is called a forced sale. Afterwards, the plaintiff must deliver the chattel to the defendant or whatever is left of it. If the plaintiff wants to keep the chattel, regardless of its condition, then the plaintiff should pursue an action for trespass to chattels. The monetary recovery might be lower, but the plaintiff does not have to part company with the object. And that brings us to the end of this lecture. Thanks, everybody, and take care.